1: Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about a couple different topics, but we're going to start out with the new Global Gene Editing Regulation Tracker, and we're speaking with John Antine and Kayleen Schreiber from the Genetic Literacy Project, the new resource is an online tool that allows you to understand the current status of gene editing as it's occurring, and I'd like to talk about the rationale behind it and um, how much it'll be updated, and get more information about this really important tool. So, welcome to the podcast, John and Kayleen.
2: Uh, thank you. It's really nice to be here and talk about our project. Put a lot of work into it.
1: Yeah.
3: Glad to be here, Kevin.
1: Yeah, nice to talk to you, John. It's always good to talk to John, and uh, so. Where did the idea to build this resource come from? I mean, it seems like an important thing, but no one else has done it. What was the rationale?
3: Kevin, I think that uh, we at the GLP had come to a realization that there is a battleground um, uh, in the area of uh, biotechnology in general. Um, Obviously, you focus more on the agricultural aspects of it, but also in the area of um, uh, medical advances using gene editing CRISPR transgenics uh, and and we felt that there's a lot of misinformation uh, out there and unfortunately, um, politicians, regulators who uh, rely on um, the information um, cyberspace arena to find out about uh, what's going on on areas that they're um, developing policies for um, go to some resources that are just not accurate. And we felt that we wanted a clear, non-biased, transparent resource on what's uh, being regulated in the gene editing sphere and in in, in the medical area and agriculture involving gene drives so that um, policy decisions can can be separated from political and ideological debates.
1: That's really important. And, And maybe we should go backwards. Kathleen, what is gene editing and why is it so important for us to understand? the regulations that go along with it?
2: Gene editing is a new um, technology that can be used for a broad spectrum of of applications. And it basically is a way, a cheap and fairly simple way for scientists to be able to either delete or edit um, genomes of plants, animals, and even humans. And um, it's kind of a breakthrough technology because of the... Almost anyone um, with a scientific background, a molecular biology background can do it. And it doesn't take that much money. So it kind of has um, broken through and people are just kind of figuring out all the different applications that it can be used for. Um, So it's important. I think the technology, as always happens, has come before the regulatory landscape and it needs to catch up. And so understanding what the technology can really do and what it means and then how we should regulate it is really important.
1: So maybe, John, you could give me some hints about how it's currently regulated. I mean, where are we in the U.S. with respect to regulation in plants and animals?
3: The the structure that's existed for many years in in the agricultural plant area um, has um, been pretty flexible relative to other countries. So uh, we um, are product-focused in our regulations. Um, which is much more progressive, I think, than in other countries which really have shut down the transgenic GMO revolution by focusing on process, nonetheless it 's very laborious. It can take anywhere from you know five to in some cases ten, twelve, fifteen years to get products um, uh, that are transgenic approved. Gene editing um, changes the dynamic a little bit because we 're not moving genes from one species to another uh, at least in in in, in the first step in the process in developing uh, crops that that, uh, are based on gene editing technologies. And that really removes a lot of the criticisms, I think, that are out there about GMOs and transgenics. So the um, regulatory um, uh, system in this country treats uh, agricultural products developed with gene editing uh, almost as if they're conventional. There's, I, I think, a lot of companies that are developing these products still are submitting their information for evaluation just to protect themselves against uh, attacks from uh, hostile NGOs or even skeptical regulators. But in the agricultural area, I think gene editing has a, uh, looks fairly optimistic that we're going to be developing a lot of new products. Um, The real problem comes in in animal um, uh, gene editing, which relies on um, regulations uh, that literally date back to the 1930s on how how the FDA uh, regulates drugs and so, in some ways, we're a world leader. Gene editing in crops appears to be. We're developing that way in the U.S., but we're really a backwater when it comes to animal gene.
1: And what are some examples of animals or plants where gene edited pro- products have been approved?
3: Well, um, some of the things again are not necessarily. It's not necessary that they be approved. Uh, there's um, a gene editing um, uh, oil. Uh, that uh, has a higher nutritional value, that uh, has been developed and is already being uh, sold. We have a lot of products uh, that are, um, have been um, tested and ready to be rolled out. A, a mushroom that doesn't uh, brown as much, developed by uh, or, or, or bruise as much, uh, developed by Penn State. A range of products. In the animal area, um, really we're not doing any research on animal uh, gene editing. Uh, nor are we doing much research or product development in in animal um, uh, GMOs just because the regulatory structure is so outdated. So there's this real tension, uh, and and there's some pressure, I think, on the U.S. government to maybe consolidate uh, animal and crop biotechnology regulations under one umbrella. But right now we have multiple organizations um, that, that compete for regulating crops and animals, which really complicates the situation.
1: And so when you have the website, who is this really targeting? Who's the person you think will get the most information from this? And, and what are you hoping they really take home?
2: We tried to make it um, accessible, but also detailed enough so that um, anyone who's interested in gene editing, but also journalists or politicians or um, people who are influential in deciding some of these regulations could go to it and get Um, enough substance and enough clarity to really answer some of their questions and even compare and say, how is um, a more flexible or clear regulatory framework, how is that helping innovation and how are some of the other um, more strict regulations shutting down regulation?
1: Okay, so all of this sounds really good. But if you're somebody who is, say, listening to this podcast and you want to uh, explore the, the site, it sounds kind of like, you know, just more information, you know, about, about these important topics. But what is the real hook? If someone visits your site, what are some of the things that they would expect to find that may be different from other resources and may be particularly more helpful?
3: Well, we structured it um, in a way to appeal, as, as Kayleen said, to a, to a broad variety of people. First off, we start out with a, what I would call almost a journalistic summary of what is the situation. It's a snapshot. So we're servicing journalists as well, as well as the general public, regulators, um, a a wide range of people. But we want someone to kind of like get it. Here's the picture. Then we have a list of products um, that are either developed or in the research stage. So for for instance, if you go to um, the U.S. crop section, you see literally 20 products that are in development. Soybean oil with no trans fat, um, virus-resistant tomatoes. Uh, Mildew-resistant wine grapes, high-yield tomatoes, corn with extra starch, a wide variety of things. And it just gives you this amazing sense of, wow, these are sustainable crops that are being developed, low-impact, high-value, nutrition-enhanced, lowering um, extraneous, highly toxic chemical inputs. So this is valuable information, I think can be used by a number of different people. We also have a regulatory timeline, which shows... How these regulations have evolved over time and I think that's important because we have to recognize that that there's a history uh, especially in the agricultural area um, and, and a fearfulness about many um, agricultural innovations um, because of a fear of technology in general I call it a techno pessimism that the next development is going to lead to some catastrophic um, development like ruining our food system or um, creating um, you know, chemical pollution that, is, that, that can't be turned around. And so the regulatory timeline really helps in, in, in that. One of the most important parts of the site is a section called NGO reaction, which documents how um, activist groups are targeting uh, innovation in the biotechnology uh, sphere, uh, and in some cases um, promoting misinformation as a way to um, stop Uh, the GMO and uh, uh, gene editing revolution. And so this provides a lot of information that's helpful, not only to journalists and scientists, but to regulators to recognize how they are being spun. So we're really trying to be transparent for everyone involved so that there's a level playing field for these products and for the technology.
1: What was really cool about the website is that, you know, I consider myself kind of an expert in these topics. But as I went through the pages, I found things that I never realized and just like stuff that was completely almost shocking in some ways, particularly with understanding how other countries are regulating the same products and how some ways U.S. looks like we're actually not in the lead in in our regulatory conceptualization. And the nice part about this was you could learn so much so fast. You don't have to do a lot of reading. You can just kind of uh, you know peruse very colorful, lots of easy ways to do this. And was there really a strategy behind this?
3: We wanted an index as well as a tracker, and the index is what you're referring to, which is a a way to look at country by country how um, what kind of friction is there in the regulatory um, structure. Uh, and surprisingly, as you as you uh, you've noticed in reviewing it, the United States uh, is. Innovative in some areas, but it's a laggard in others, uh, and not surprisingly, perhaps, of people who are familiar with agricultural biotechnology. Europe, which is, has such a history of scientific innovation, is literally a backwater in bio- agricultural biotechnology. And it's so stark to realize that, that obscure countries around the world with tiny research budgets are, are far, far more advanced in, um, in uh, allowing um, industry and um, uh, scientists. And universities to develop these 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 cutting edge products that can have such a sustainable impact on, on on the environment.
1: And was it really just gene editing? I know there's also a section on gene drives. And uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: We focused on gene editing, and all there are various def- different technologies within gene editing. And then we also added a section on gene drives, which is the most um, the newest aspect of gene editing. But usually, at least for now, gene drives usually include some gene editing technology and also some GMO technology, some transgenic technology. So that makes it a little more complicated as far as regulations go, because um, usually they have been regulated differently. And um, But we wanted to bring it in, even though most countries have not decided yet what they're going to do with gene drives. There's some research going on. There's been tests in in the lab, but um, it's still kind of a current social topic, whether we should take um, species, even if they're extremely harmful, should we wipe them out? Um, what are going to be the effects of that? How can we control it in an effective way? Um, and all these questions. So we wanted to be kind of at the forefront and uh, put that in, and then we'll sort of track it as it goes along and see how these countries, how we decide um, these new, this brand new technologies should be regulated.
3: We also believe that there are legitimate, ethical, um, and scientific questions, as, as Kayleen referred to, about um, gene drives. Uh, so we don't want to suggest that lower regulation is always the best way to go. The issue should be smart regulation. Um, and that's especially true in, in gene drives because they are so complicated. Surely we all want to, uh, would love to see um, Zika-carrying or malaria-carrying mosquitoes um, uh, be wiped out. But um, perhaps there are other questions about how we are manipulating uh, species. And so this is uh, 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 an area of our site that I think um, stirs an ability to look at things from a, um, a wide variety of perspectives, not just purely the scientific.
1: Well, could you tell me a little bit more about where it's going next? And you know, it's a really great resource, but it's going to become very cumbersome to continually update because... New news is hitting every single day in gene editing. So, is there is this something that you will continually update and maybe take in other directions?
2: We have been updating um, day by day, almost with new products and um, as regulations change or regulations are released, we have been updated and we will continue to do that. Um, I think it is as only as useful as it is current, and so we'll continue to do that and we will. Um, especially be adding a more robust um, product list as uh, we find and more products are developed and commercialized. And so, yes, we will continue to, to update it and keep it current.
1: Well, the question always comes up is how is something like this funded? And it must be enormously expensive with the daily updates and, and, and the space that it takes. So where does the funding come from to do this? And can people contribute to uh, keeping it alive and, and growing?
3: Uh, great question. We actually uh, post on the uh, homepage of this uh, of this site uh, a transparency statement uh, linking people to our master website where we list all our donors uh, and access to our federal 990s. This uh, project was funded out of our uh, very small <laughs> um, overall budget uh, where we have a variety of contributors. We don't take money from corporations. We take a... Uh, money from, uh, generally, the, the public and foundations, all of which are listed uh, in our 990s or on our site. So, um, to be honest, uh, we are a very small NGO. We only have three full-time employees, believe it or not. Kayleen, a neuroscientist, uh, works for us uh, as a uh, an editor, but uh, juggles a number of other things in her life, including, including a beautiful new baby. Uh, and we are... Um, absolutely looking for people who support science to support this. And if they want to target their donation specifically to uh, the gene editing project, that would be fantastic because we do anticipate that this um, will take a considerable amount of resources uh, on a month-by-month basis, somewhat indefinitely, but we think the resource is worth it.
1: Well, if people want to explore the resource, where do they find it?
3: Well, we will uh, have it accessible through our website, the Genetic Literacy Project. It's also on a standalone website. Anyone who puts in a uh, Genetic Literacy Project uh, gene tracker uh, would immediately find it. Um, but as of now, uh, we will prominently display on the GLP homepage um, a panel that allows people to go directly to this. Uh, and it's, then it's a resource that's available um, to literally anyone, uh, even critics. Uh, of gene editing or uh, or those concerned about the misapplication of this technology.
1: Well, in all your research to assemble this resource, you must have really seen some trends in how things like gene therapy or human applications in embryos versus agriculture, you know, what are the major trends that you're seeing in terms of how the public is feeling about gene editing?
2: I think that in the agricultural area, Maybe the public doesn't have quite as much of an understanding of exactly what products are even available. And I think if they knew more about what was being developed and exactly how the technology works, they they might be open to it as it provides some avenues for sustainability and addressing climate change. On the health side, um, I think there's been a lot of news about new therapies, gene therapy and stem cell Therapy that people um, are excited about, and they inherently understand the value of addressing disease and how these technologies can um, can treat and and help some diseases that we haven't had any treatments for in the past. But at the same time, uh, people are understandably very sensitive to um, editing the human genome or what that means or if we should do it, and especially there's been um, some scientists who have. Gone ahead of where everyone is comfortable with, and as um, a Chinese scientist edited the genome of embryos that were then brought to term, twins and um, mo- the scientific community and the public were all not comfortable with that, and and um, felt that he broke broke some barriers there, and but it it started to kind of. Uh, Make people more aware that we really need to decide as a society how we should regulate and enforce these regulations, and when is it appropriate to, um, you know, address disease through gene editing, and when um, should it not be appropriate, and those types of questions. So I think there really is a different um, attitude or feeling for agriculture versus human health, and the regulations should. Um, respect that and reflect that um, in a way that's clear and doesn't stifle innovation, but understands, you know, the the ethics about it um, and are sensitive to that.
3: Gene editing can be used for um, human enhancement as well as for disease amelioration. That that's the I I think the the real question mark. Do we want to not only get uh, target specific genes um, that Huntington's disease, um, for instance. Uh, We probably can rid ourselves of that through embryonic manipulation. But what about, do we want someone to be more intelligent? Do we want someone to be taller? Um, Do we want someone to be better looking? These are controversial questions, um, and they even go deeper than that, and and are linked to disease. Do we want to rid people uh, of the genes that might cause them to be deaf? There's a deaf community that feels that that is stigmatizing um, a part of the variety of the of the, Of the human condition, uh, so these are very controversial questions um, that have ethical weight, um, and we want to be a place that people can go, uh, that they will find um, uh, neutral information uh, to help inform a, um, a better regulatory system going forward.
1: And along that line, John, you know, do you think that this is really a in response to how industry and how science communication fumbled, the rollout of transgenics, and that by taking a proactive approach, by putting out transparent and easily accessible information, do you think this can maybe help uh, limit the stigmatization of this technology as they did transgenics?
3: Well, that's our hope. That was really a, the driving um, thought in developing this. We um, experienced, as lay people and you as a scientist, I think with great frustration. This amazing transgenic technology, which began rolling out in the, uh, through the 90s and the early 2000s, uh, and yet we had um, environmental groups, activist groups, that really took the science out of context and demonized it, creating fears of, you know, franken animals and uh, potential dire unintended consequences when in fact 25 years later we've not even had someone develop so much as a sniffle related to the development of GMOs but yet there was a catastrophe in science communication uh, in the early 2000s especially uh, that industry played a large role in because they weren't so transparent about every aspect of what they were doing. And they also believed that the, they, they thought this was gee whiz, everybody will love this technology and farmers embraced it at, you know, head over heels, but, um, but it, it, the public was wary and NGOs that are uh, technophobic or at least technoskeptics um, essentially exacerbated the problem gene editing uh offers an opportunity to set the clock right a little bit
1: (laughs) and i guess maybe the last question is how many days do you think it will be before uh people are actively maligning the resource as just another uh tool of big ag to manipulate the consumer
3: uh well uh i I think it's you're already two days late on that (laughs) It, it was within hours of rolling it out that we began seeing posts to that effect um and people who don't even know um, any of the background of it, the development of it, um, it's just a knee-jerk reaction uh, that anybody or any um, any support for transparency in biotechnology um, must be suspicious and there must be some ulterior motive behind it.
1: Yeah, I know. It's uh, sad that it caught on so quick, but I guess it could, should be expected. Um, it's their full-time job to make our full-time job's miserable. So <laughs> um, I guess the last thing then would be, where do people find the resource again? You mentioned the URL earlier, but uh, could you hit me with that one more time?
3: Sure. Well, the, the re- central resource for the Genetic Literacy Project, GeneticLiteracyProject.org, um, has the gene tracker on it. It's, you know, CRISPR gene editing regs tracker um, is what it is. But essentially, the GLP should be the resource for it or search for it in Google. Put in gene tracker regulations, GLP, genetic literacy project, whatever, and it'll immediately come up.
1: Awesome. So Kayleen Schreiber and John Entine, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was really exciting to learn about this new resource and I've had a good time looking at it. So thank you very much for joining me.
3: Thank you. you.
1: And we'll be back on the second half of the Talking Biotech podcast, really with a tribute to a lost scientist who also was a tremendous friend and a great contributor to uh, the area of Berry Research. We'll be back with the Talking Biotech podcast in just a moment. It was great to have the opportunity to talk about the Genetic Literacy Project, a website that has posted daily news about breakthroughs in biotechnology, human medicine, and other contemporary issues in genetics. I hope you visit their website and share the information that's there with others. It's really important. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. The first week of Patreon support has been amazing and has allowed me to think even bigger. All of the support will go to fund improvements in this podcast as well as spawn new projects such as a children's book on crop domestication. Every fruit and vegetable has a story and just about every one is amazing. I've articulated that in a fun text that I'd like to offer for free. I think that when we put those stories in everyone's hands, it changes perceptions of human influence on plant genetics, changes attitudes towards what is natural, and maybe even can curb food waste. And that's next on my agenda, along with some really cool videos on YouTube which will deal with academic publishing and career advice for early career scientists. I can take all of these other opportunities on because I have someone else doing the production of the Talking Biotech podcast thanks to you. There also will be new partnerships in the works with the Genetic Literacy Project, so watch for those too. Now back to the podcast. So now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, and it's a little bit different than our normal segment And that I really need to spend a few moments to talk about someone who's no longer with us. And every so often we hear about a scientist that's passed away, and usually it's a well-known contributor that left, left us long after retirement and gives us time to reflect on their contributions. And those are sad times. And I can think of many incredible colleagues and mentors that have left us that gap To fill. And uh, they're sad times, but fully expected. Um, Nobody lives forever. But once in a while, we come to a shocking time where we experience the tragic and unexpected loss of somebody who really is flying high in the prime of their career, and someone we thought would always be there and is there one day and gone the next. And right now, we grieve such a loss in the plant biology community. Um, Episode 186 of the Talking Biotech podcast was an interview with Dr. Chad Finn. He's an internationally recognized small fruit breeder with the USDA ARS in Corvallis, Oregon. He's universally revered and respected not only as an expert in the field, but as as a colleague in the sciences and also as a dear friend to just about everyone who had the pleasure of meeting him. I had the privilege of spending a short time but intense times with him in various capacities, and I won't go into that because I'll get too damn sad. Um I'll just say that I was crushed by the news of his passing and have felt an insurmountable loss ever since. And I've written a dozen notes to his family and to his colleagues and I've sent zero. Um it seems like a statement of my condolences is really insignificant relative to what his family and close colleagues are experiencing. And I was really in a conundrum about what I could possibly do to better remember his amazing science, his great career, and a really good friend. I thought a fitting tribute might be to use this medium to help others understand his contributions, memorialize his accomplishments, and maybe hear some other reflections from someone that worked with him very closely. So today I'm speaking with Dr. Bernadine Strick from Oregon State University. Uh, She's the berry research, berry crops research lead at the North Willamette Research and Extension Center. Um, So welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Strick.
4: Uh, thank you, Dr. Folta. It's not a, not a very joy, joyous time for us to be chatting, but I really do appreciate the opportunity to share some uh, special moments uh, about Dr. Chad Finn, Chad, um, but also to uh, let people know just how incredible Uh, he was and how amazing his accomplishments were. So it's an honor to be able to do that.
1: No, thank you for joining me. I know that you have worked very closely with him over many years, and could you kind of give a little sense of that? Like, when did you start working with him, and uh, in what capacity?
4: Sure. So uh, I've been a professor at Oregon State University for 32 years, and I have known Chad for 26 of, of those years. Uh, Chad was hired in 1996 as the USDA ARS research geneticist. Uh, that's what we were supposed to call him, but we all called him the berry crop breeder. And uh, what we had is a very unique relationship because uh, the Cooperative Breeding Program here is the only one of its kind in the world. Uh, it's a partnership between the USDA ARS Berry Crop Breeder, which was CHAD at the Hort Crops Research Unit here in Corvallis. It's actually based on campus uh, here at Oregon State University. And I'm the OSU horticulturist. So we would actually jointly release uh, cultivars. And the program itself uh, is over a hundred years old, uh, and as I said, the only one of its kind in the world. So Chad, uh, uh, Chad and I are very uh, almost the same age, and we would always joke that uh, we look pretty damn good for a hundred years old, and uh, <laughs> uh, we would always be uh, teasing each other about who was the oldest and, and who was the youngest, and he died much too young uh, at 57 years old and as you said uh, in the prime of his life uh, with a tremendous uh, number of accomplishments. Chad would make all the important decisions on what to cross and what might be good parents and certainly had a tremendous number of partners, genomicists, uh, flavor chemists, virologists, pathologists, Uh, pathologists, uh, did a lot of uh, work with uh, Dr. Nahala Basil on DNA fingerprinting to learn, you know, what might be key traits that they could focus on. Um, But on the practical end of it, I was his closest partner in terms of uh, horticulture. And so he would make the crosses, he would select the seedlings, Um, that showed the most potential compared to industry standards. And then the advanced selections would come to the North Willamette Research and Extension Center where uh, all the advanced selections would be planted and compared to industry standards. And in addition to, you know, Chad, obviously making key evaluations of those, we'd get yield and quality data and bring in other members of the team then the fruit would go back to Oregon State University to the Department of Food Science and Technology where partners in our team would freeze it. And then the industry would be able to evaluate this fruit uh, processed, which is a, you know, a key industry for us. So Chad and I would um, often walk the fields and he would ask my opinion on the horticultural traits and did I think this would be a cultivar that that would uh, do well in the industry and in the end we jointly release these it would be a USDA ARS OSU joint release so I guess what I'd like to do if if it's all right is just uh, give people an idea of just how productive of a breeder he was with some of the highlights uh, of what he was able to accomplish.
1: Now, that sounds really good. Like what were some of the main crops that he worked on even, you know, just for the listeners who may not have known him, uh, what are some of the main crops he worked on? And then if you can go into some of those impacts about the, the major ones that we would recognize or, or, you know, the major accomplishments.
4: Chad, I think in his 26 years developed probably the most recognized berry crop breeding program in the world Chad did germplasm evaluation or breeding in um, red and black raspberry, blackberry, strawberry, and blueberry, and even uh, did some germplasm evaluation in kiwi berry, uh, particularly Actinidia arguta. And so he co-released an incredible fifty-one cultivars in those twenty-six years, and. And while he may not have been the lead on all 51, because that's what co-release means, it indicates just how collaborative his program was. He worked very closely with the breeder at Washington State University, who's now retired, Dr. Pat Moore, uh, with uh, the various breeders in Agri-Food and Ag Canada and British Columbia, Hugh Dobney, then Chaim Kempler, and then Michael Dossett. Uh, certainly with, uh, another premier blackberry breeder in the world, Dr. John Clark, and then various colleagues, uh, like, uh, Jim Hancock at Michigan State University. And I hate leaving somebody out, but those are the key ones that, that come to mind at this point. And so he was recognized certainly as a premier blackberry breeder. Um, in our region, we are, are the, uh, the United States' largest blackberry production region, and Chad's uh, Chad developed the first genetically thornless trailing blackberries uh, in in the world, and his Black Diamond and Columbia Star are now the most widely planted uh, in our industry, and he also released Obsidian trailing blackberry, which is grown for fresh market in Oregon, but is also grown in Europe. And Columbia Star is also being tested and grown in Europe. And then as far as I know, he's the only one who has released blackberry cultivars that have combined traits of trailing blackberries with the eastern type of blackberry. And so these are his goal, um, as Chad would always have said it, his goal was to produce a late season Firm fresh market blackberry that would surpass Chester Thornless, which is considered the industry standard, which many feel has no flavor. Um, and he did that, releasing Galaxy, Eclipse, and Twilight, which are brand new, and I think they will revolutionize the fresh blackberry market. Uh, so he had big impacts in blackberry, and then when we look at strawberry. Uh, we have a processed strawberry industry. I think we still rank third in the U.S. for strawberry, uh, a long, long distant third after uh, California and Florida. But we, we grow high flavor um, strawberries for processed specialty markets like high-value ice creams, et cetera. And Tillamook, which is a cultivar that Chad released, um, is the most widely planted strawberry um, in this region. And then in raspberries, Chad released two primocane fruiting late season raspberries, red raspberries, vintage and coconut, that are uh, very widely planted. And finally, in um, blueberries, it's just a shame that he won't be able to see the impact some of these new releases will have um, on the industry. Uh, Mini Blues is a new um, high bush blueberry very cold hardy. It's a northern highbush that is, in my opinion, and I've tasted many blueberries throughout the world, the most intensely flavored small-fruited blueberry available, and it can be grown conventional or organic. And it's just an incredible addition to the palette of cultivars that are available. And he and I were working very closely on developing production systems that could be used uh, to minimize hands- on, uh, so minimize labor with machine harvest and no pruning for several years and we're making great progress in that. So to sum up kind of his impact, he was a regional breeder so he was very uh, interested and required to look at impacts that he could have in the Northwest. And so he kept track of impacts on nursery plant sales and fruit sales. And his impact is absolutely mind-blowing. $450 million impact of his cultivars over the last 10 years. That is a phenomenal impact to industry. And I really do want to say that, that Chad had an incredibly close relationship with the industry. And that is something that he would be so incredibly proud of, would be to have that kind of impact um, to the industry.
1: That's all really great. I It really does sum it up very well, especially when you consider that most plant breeding programs that are either at ARS or university-based, if you're producing a cultivar every 15 years or every 10 years, you're, you're doing pretty well because that takes a long time to do these things. And the fact that he was able to do 51 over, you know, 26 years is a real testament to, like you say, the interaction and the collegiality, but also the uh, what must be um, an amazing work ethic that, you know, from what I could tell, never seemed to quit. And, and I, and it was, I guess I'm having trouble formulating the next question, but even, even when he was, his productivity was amazing, yet he still had so many. Um, other impacts in terms of helping students in terms of um, is uh, so, uh, impacts with the uh, associations and national societies and could you comment a little bit on that?
4: Oh I'm happy to because you know um, uh, our families are very similar um, uh, he and his wife two sons, and me and my husband have have two daughters similar ages and uh he, he and I, uh, always, uh, when we interact with students from undergraduates to graduates and, and junior science scientists have always, uh, shared often over a beer, how important it is when we mentor these more junior people to have that work-life balance and, um, uh, Chad, uh, I hope I've done that, but Chad did an exemplary uh, job at this. Um, he uh, really said to junior faculty who miss him tremendously as a mentor um, and junior scientists at the ARS that you, in order to be effective, you have to be effective in all aspects of your life. And so an example of that uh, professionally was that uh Chad was passionate about every step of the process. It wasn't just getting a cultivar, but it was getting the funding and working with colleagues to be effective at that. It was working with colleagues to include them in the project so that they could also be successful. And then publishing that refereed paper at the end and releasing the cultivar and following through to make sure it was a good cultivar. And if not to improve upon it, um, personally, uh, boy, to say Chad lived life to the fullest would would really be an an understatement. Um, He he was an incredible family man and would travel a lot with his family. We often went to scientific meetings together and would add personal time and go hiking. Known as a plant geek, loved plants. He and my husband uh, were real like-minded about that. And, um, uh, yes, he worked hard. In fact, uh, he usually opened the gates at the research station and would always uh, text me photos of sunrise. And it got to the point where uh, I would think he was bragging <laughs> that he was that he was there so early. And uh, that was just the way he was. Very much a morning person, um, worked very hard and played very hard. And you know, it um, it is tragic to have lost him at such a young age but you know Chad uh passed away doing you know what he would say would be uh a better way than passing away at his desk let me say he was w- vacationing with family and having a good time and it was a tragic accident and and uh, I think uh, he would prefer that way than than dying at his desk um, but he uh The other thing i want to say about him is something you've mentioned and alluded to and everyone who met him noticed to say chad had a joie de vivre is an understatement i mean he was always smiling had an incredibly infectious laugh you could find him in a crowded room just by waiting a few seconds and waiting till he laughed he never needed a microphone when giving a talk um, he changed the dress code at professional meetings to shorts, tie dye, and and if he had to, long pants and a bow tie. Um, he gave hugs that literally broke someone's ribs once, so I had to work out to strengthen mine. And uh, he uh, incredible sense of humor, incredibly giving. Everyone he met uh, uh, wasn't a stranger for long; they became a friend. And he, all, he and his wife and family always had an open door for visitors and scientists. And our program was always a revolving door of people who wanted to visit with Chad and walk his plots. And and that's why he's touched so many. I mean, we had a celebration of life uh, in mid-January. I was honored to be asked by the family to speak at that. And I mean, there were more than 550 people crowded into the room. He, he touched so many people and, and, and many flew a long distance to come and, and share that celebration of life. So as sad as we are, he would want us all to think about the good things and to uh, toast him when we, when we next can.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I really wanted to make it out to the celebration, but it's it's a long haul from Gainesville, Florida to Corvallis, Oregon. That's like a you know, and especially on short notice, relatively short notice. Um, but the, the the one thing that you alluded to there that was really something I think about is what do we learn from the people who have left us, who that we can try to pick up where they left off. Um, what are the things we can do better? And I think his, uh, commitment to development of younger personalities, the fact that everybody was his friend, those are the things that I think places that we can all learn from him and in his honor, um, do better ourselves. And i uh, very glad you brought, I'm glad you brought that up. So when I go through his, um, accomplishments. And I look at, you know, you filled in certainly his accomplishments as a plant breeder. And certainly, personally, um, you look online, he's got almost 7,000 citations. The guy was a scholar, he was a friend, you know, all the way across the board. But is there anything else that you would really like to wrap up with as somebody who worked extremely closely with him for a long time?
4: Yeah, I, I think the uh, the thing that is important for people to know is that just how well recognized he was uh, not just by um, uh, industry and colleagues internationally. He, he was invited everywhere. I mean, I, I can think of very few countries he wasn't invited to, to speak about breeding in particular. Um, he was very active in the International Society for Horticultural Science, co-convening a couple of symposia. He was extremely active in our American Society for Horticultural Science, and in fact received their highest honor, uh, a fellow in in 2010, which is uh, certainly very significant. And then the um, ARS gave him a, a technology transfer award, and he's received many awards. He's an alumnus at Purdue and received their Distinguished Alumnus Award. And these are just testaments to how well uh, respected he was by colleagues and scientists. And um, you know, the world has lost uh, just a simply outstanding berry crop breeder. Um, many of us have lost an amazing colleague, and of course, as I've mentioned, a friend of so many people here and worldwide, and I think Chad is going to be remembered for a long time for his accomplishments, you know, how generous he was, how big his heart was, and, and he, uh, his very bright personality, and he'll, he'll be greatly missed.
1: Yes, uh, he is already. And it's just, uh, it really has left a shock throughout our community. And I, I think so many people have reached out to talk about it. And I really appreciate that they'll have the opportunity to hear it from from you, someone who works so closely with them. So thank Dr. Bernadine Strick. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. And uh, maybe we'll see you uh, pretty soon.
4: Thank you very much.
1: And I neglected to add that uh, Dr. Chad Finn was featured on the podcast recently in episode 186. And I'm so grateful to have captured his story, his enthusiasm, his passions, his kind friendship. It's now permanently um, part of the series here and part of his electronic legacy. And if you haven't heard it, go give it a listen. And uh, thank you to Dr. Strick. Um, Losing a friend is never easy. And I'm grateful she was here to tell the story. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast represents the views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and his guests and does not represent the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, students, or administration. Send your comments and suggestions to KevinFolta@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined, send us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support of the mission will translate into more science communication efforts with greater reach and influence, helping ultimately to bring innovation to application through communication. I'm Vern Blazek, and thank you very much for listening,
2: and we'll talk to you again next week.